For the week of Thursday, April 18th, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. Thursday, April 18th. Anything interesting happening today? Anything in the news? <laughs> anyway, this week, understanding the often unprecedented issues around the Trump administration with author Terry Canefield. She is the creator of the popular explainer Twitter feed, and we talk about authoritarianism, outrage overload, and yes, the Mueller report. And then we will wrap things up with our calls to action with research team leader Stephen Wilhelm. That's all ahead, so stay with us. So much of what we are faced with politically in 2019 is variously overwhelming, disheartening, or difficult to understand and contextualize, and can often be a combination of all three. My guest, Terry Canefield, has made it her work to offer cogent explanations that are both accessible and even encouraging about our political climate, which is no easy feat. In addition to her enormously popular Twitter thread, which is also presented in blog form at terrycanefield-blog.com, Terry has written for publications like Slate and CNN.com. Additionally, she is the author of a frankly jaw-dropping number of books on subjects like former presidents, historical figures, and Supreme Court justices, all of this in addition to having published several volumes of fiction. She also previously worked in private practice as an appellate attorney for indigent clients. Terry assures me that, in fact, she does sleep. So I started our conversation by asking her about how and why she started doing these explainer pieces for Twitter. I actually started off thinking I was going to write a book called How Trump Happened. My original idea was to tweet out my research as I came up with it because I thought that would just be fun. And then after a while, I thought, I don't want to write a book called How Trump Happened. I just want to keep tweeting. Like, this is much more fun than editing pages and going through copy <laughs> editing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, the book's losses are a gain, I suppose. Well, so let's talk about some of your threads. So, uh, I mean, you've written so many that it's it's kind of hard to know where to begin. But let's start with your piece called The Outrage Dilemma, because uh, it's something that a lot of us in the activist world can relate to, especially right now. So you write about how to address what a Rand Corporation study calls the fire hose of falsehoods that come out of Trump every day. You take it further and talk about Trump's fire hose of outrageousness. You cite Yale professor Timothy Snyder, and you say what Trump is doing is very deliberate. So what's he doing and what's he accomplishing? What what Professor Snyder talks about is something called crisis and spectacle. It's a way of governing, and it's a deliberate strategy. And what you do is you keep everybody spinning. You, run from, you go from one crisis to the next. And here's why. The traditional way of governing is you're looking for ways to improve life for the people. And so you're one way or another, you're trying to move the country forward. Whatever vision you think it is, if you think that deregulating the industry is going to move things forward, you still have a vision for the future. So what Trump has and what others, such leaders have, is they don't have a vision for the future. They want to loop back to the past. That's what the Make America Great is. And so the only way you can do that is you've got to keep people spinning. When people say, well, why are Trump's voters going against their own economic best interests? There's something Trump is offering that's more compelling for them. And so if you're not going to really improve people's lives, the, the only way you can manage this and try to loop backwards is to create spectacle, to lurch from one crisis to another and wear people out. Ultimately, what you're talking about here is destabilization with mm-hmm. the idea of undermining democracy and mm-hmm. the institutions themselves. 
Right. And so I called it the outrage dilemma because it's a dilemma. What do you do? On the, so Trump does something outrageous. He says he tells the judges to ignore the law. Now, you have a couple options with this. Some people think, oh, my gosh, we can't normalize this. And so what we have to do is we have to be outraged. We can't normalize this. We have to react. But then on the other hand, if you react, then you're in this outrage cycle. You're constantly outraged. And I'm of the opinion at this point that the outrage is no longer necessary because when we overreact to everything, he's winning because the whole point of crisis and spectacle and outrage and a fire hose of outrageousness, the whole point of that is to wear us out and we're letting him do that. So what I did is I looked at the fire hose, the Rand Institute came up with a really interesting study about how to handle a propaganda technique called the, what they call the fire hose of falsehood, which is what Putin does and Trump does, which is you just reel off one lie after another and to keep everybody busy. Right, because people are ultimately trying to refute all of these lies. And the Rand Corporation study that you cite says that's not a very good strategy. So they call it countering a fire hose of falsehood with a squirt gun of truth. You can't do it. You're going to lose the game. So what they say instead, instead of trying to refute each lie, you give the population raincoats so that instead of trying to get the fire hose to stop, you put raincoats on the people. And I think we've done that. And meaning that we're preparing people for the lies. We're preparing them to expect the lies. Right. So if everybody expects the lie, then it doesn't have the same effect. And then I, by analogy, went to the fire hose of outrageousness. And I said, well, let's think about this. So instead of going into a spin every time he does something outrageous, what we want to do is counter the effects. So I thought, okay, how do you counter the effects of all this outrageousness? And it seems to me that all of these outrageous things, when you list them, what he's doing is he's battering our democratic institutions. He's trying to knock them down. It's a time-honored, every every autocratic leader does this. And so you say that we should work to strengthen those institutions. Exactly. So instead of running around with your hair on fire every and having this awe and shock reaction every time he does something outrageous, just get out there and do what you can do. And in doing what you can do, you cite things that activists are, my listening audience, very familiar with, registering voters, canvassing, organizing locally. Uh, You also recommend making your views known, but in a way that doesn't increase polarization. And that leads me into your writings on authoritarianism. Uh, You talk about the rise of the right-wing authoritarian in this country. So let's talk about them. First of all, how do we define a right-wing authoritarian, and how do they differ from a traditional conservative? So a conservative, the traditional sort of conservative, is averse to change. They like the status quo. They're uncomfortable with too much change. And Jonathan Haidt is the NYU professor who talks very well about this, that they don't like change, and they actually stand on quite a lot of moral ground. They're, they're very moral people, but they're uncomfortable with change. And to defend people uncomfortable with change because I'm actually not one of them. I'm very comfortable with change. Too much change is destabilizing. And so in a perfect sort of world, you have the people who are uncomfortable with change slowing things down and the people who are uncomfortable with change speeding things up. And you have this balance because you don't want 
too much change too fast, it can be destabilizing. So the traditional conservatives don't like change. The right-wing authoritarians, they don't like complexity. They're averse to complexity. And very often, actually, I was just reading this in psychologist Karen Stenner's book. There's often an overlap between these two, but they're very different. So when somebody's averse to complexity, they like sameness and oneness sort of across the population. They're uncomfortable with differences. They're also uncomfortable with diversity because that alarms them. They don't feel they, they feel threatened by it. Right. So there's a tendency for right wing authoritarians to be intolerant, but they're only intolerant under certain conditions. It, it's got to be stirred up in them, but they have a tendency toward racial intolerance. Whereas traditional conservatives don't, they are not inclined to dislike um, or to be afraid of or worried about diversity where authoritarians are. Um, When I was in school, I learned the word reactionary, which was a far right wing person who, you know, the conservatives didn't want change and the reactionaries wanted to go backwards. So I think reactionary is also another word for the right-wing authoritarians, that they want to go backwards. And so since they want to go backwards, they're not afraid of change. They're willing to go upset the whole status quo. You also say that uh, right-wing authoritarians have a tendency toward cruelty, uh, and that gets into a piece that uh, you wrote about, uh, again, uh, calling back on Timothy Snyder's theory of uh, what he calls sadopopulism. So uh, a sadopopulist leader enacts policies that are specifically designed to inflict pain on their populace. So this, on the face of it, seems very counterintuitive. Talk about how this dynamic works. So sadopopulism is how Timothy Snyder describes what a modern 21st century far right-wing leader does as opposed to the fascists of the 20th century. So not to give Hitler credit or anything, but apparently Hitler did sort of spread the wealth. You know, ordinary Germans, you know, their wealth went up because Hitler spread around the the spoils from the victims. So he was not a sadopopulist. He wasn't a sadopopulist. So the difference between Hitler and actually Mussolini is a better example. The difference between Mussolini and Putin is that Mussolini wanted power and Putin wants wealth and power. So if you want to be a billionaire and you want to be powerful, then you can't spread all the wealth to your followers because then you're not a billionaire. So the way that Putin becomes a billionaire and Trump, who wants to be both wealthy and powerful, what they do is they enact policies that specifically harm their constituents. And when they do that, they create a rage in their constituents, which they then direct to the people who they blame. So, for example, tax cuts for the rich, uh, repealing the ACA, these sorts of things inflict pain on Trump followers, which they are then encouraged to channel toward immigrants, uh, asylum seekers, uh, even Democrats who are trying to enact policies that would actually help Trump supporters. Yes. So one Trump supporter said to me on Twitter, I I try to vet people, so I I don't think I'm quoting from bots. I think these are real people. So Mm. Trump supporter said to me, People are jumping the border and we don't have enough resources to go around. Why should my taxes pay for them? The sense she has that there aren't enough resources is because people are squeezing her. Trump has plenty of resources. So she feels like there are not enough resources in the United States to go around. And people are jumping the border to take what I have. 
it's brilliant, right? Because sure, it actually she's puts me in mind of uh, another woman who was interviewed about how the government shutdown was impacting her. And she said that she was upset that Trump wasn't, quote, hurting the people he needs to be. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So Trump has so persuaded people. It's, it's again, gets down to sort of textbook fascist techniques, which is to create an us versus them. Now, if you repeal Obamacare, I think what's going to happen? Oh, my gosh, you're going to have people dying early. So when pe- when deaths in the family, if it's a wage earner, you're going to throw the family into poverty and people are going to be hurting. And so the more they hurt, the more enraged they get. And then the more they direct that toward the enemy. And you can see what this whole thing does. This whole thing creates this, uh, somebody used the word tornado. It's like a BS tornado. It's like, a, we started. I started out talking about the the cycle of outrage. What Trump needs to do is keep everybody spinning in circles because then nobody is thinking about moving forward. So the more he gives tax cuts for the rich, takes away benefits, cuts Social Security, and takes away education, which is a long-term way to really hurt people. So you start dismantling the public school system. You start dismantling healthcare, and then you create an abundance of suffering which then, because the right-wing authoritarians can be cruel when their fears are aroused, you turn that against somebody, and then they feel like Trump is their protector from the people, quote, jumping the border. So they see him, he's hurting them, and they see him as their protector, which is, people really underestimate Trump. They think he's stupid and senile. Uh, this is not so stupid. No, no I mean, it makes a, a perverse sort of sense. And, you know, this is in service of understanding this mentality in light of how we may ultimately be called upon to cobble together a coalition here. Uh, there's a piece that you write about Chile and how they were able to emerge from authoritarian rule under Pinochet by building uncomfortable coalitions. So you consulted with Karen Stenner, who is a former professor at Princeton and Duke, and she has written about how to deactivate what she calls the authoritarian dynamic, sort of like uh, deprogramming a cult follower. So how does she say we go about this? Well, she's really the expert on this. What she says is that a person with an authoritarian predisposition is harmless. They respect institutions, they're law-abiding, they like simple lives, they are patriotic, and if it's directed properly, they're an important part of the country. What she calls an authoritarian dynamic is when the fears are aroused. When the fears are aroused, they become fearful, they become angry, they can be violent, and they can tolerate cruelty in others. In fact, one of her books is called The Authoritarian Dynamic. Basically, we're in one. We're in a big one. And so... She says that we need to bring the authoritarians back into the fold. And will we bring them all? No, of course not. We don't need to. The authoritarian, people who have a, a, actually a predisposition is about a third of the population. You'll never get everybody. And the landslide presidential elections in our history was like, say, FDR, one of his elections where I think it was like about 60%, 62%. We've just never had a presidential election with more than that. And so it isn't like you need to go, you know, find your really furious Trump-loving neighbor and convert them. You don't have to. We want to not alienate them. We prefer not to be their enemies. But really, 
we want to deactivate as much as possible. But if you start thinking you have to deactivate the whole population, then it's an impossible task. It will never happen. Right. But what you say in your writings is that we need basically a, a 60 percent coalition. Yes, and that, that's very possible. Now, t- the reason it's possible you only need 60 is because we are not in a Pinochet dictatorship. It's a lot harder to get out of a dictatorship. I have a follower who's persuaded that we are in an autocracy right now. I'll tell you what, my husband lived through the Pinochet dictatorship. Oh, my wow. husband's family experienced, my husband's Chilean. So his family lived through the whole dictatorship. We're not in an autocracy yet. So since we are not, it it took a lot more to get out of the dictatorship in Chile, which makes sense, right? Because once you've got a dictator, it's harder to get him out than it is while you still have meaningful elections to vote him out. So we still have to, um, the never Trumpers, um, the people who are conservative and they will vote conservative and they don't love things about you know, liberal culture, liberal thought, but they're opposed to Trump. There is some thinking you see out there where, well, they help make this possible. So they're also the enemy. Okay, good. There. Now you're going to. You're taking the moral high ground, but yeah. So my point is, yeah, the way they got out of it in Chile is all sides, sides that hated each other, sides that couldn't even earlier even sit in the same room with each other. They stared into the abyss. They saw the absolute brutality, what it really is like to live under a dictatorship. And because they stared into that abyss, they were able to pull together a very, very strong majority. Since we're not there yet, I'd say, yeah, if if we repeat the midterms, if there's a 10-point difference, then it's such a bloodbath for the Republicans that it's going to be a restart. Well, that's very encouraging, and I think we can uh, we can shift away from the topic uh, on that. I was hoping to get to kind of a place of hope, and you did it. So, uh, <laughs> because you've written very extensively about the Mueller investigation, I cannot let you go without asking a, a couple of questions. Um, so, as of our recording, Attorney General Barr has promised to release a redacted version of the Mueller report to Congress. Gerald Nadler, who is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, has said that he will subpoena what isn't released. You wrote recently that this may well wind up in front of the Supreme Court. So how do you see all this playing out? Well, what I see happening is a constitutional showdown. We will eventually see this report. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's not possible, short of actually instating a dictatorship, it's not possible to bury this report completely forever. And the reason is the evidence is too spread around. Too many people have seen it. Too many people know what's in it. Eventually, it's going to come out. The question is how quickly and how and when. And there are lots and lots of different ways to get to it. All this by way of saying, I expect Barr to do some stonewalling. I expect we're going to have, actually, everybody put on your raincoats because we're going to have some crisis and spectacle coming up. My speculation is that Barr had this report finished already. Otherwise, how do you know ahead of time when it's going to be done? What he's doing in these stallings and these redactions and this manipulation is he's allowing Trump to be able to control the narrative. So Trump knows what's coming out and Trump is ready. So I I don't think Barr believes that he's going to hold the truth back for very long. But Trump never intended to come up with a traditional legal defense. Trump was always going to play this out 
in the court of popular opinion using his propaganda techniques. And so you had some interesting things to say about what might potentially happen if this wound up in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, A quote from uh, your piece reads, why would the court create an autocrat, which would mean giving up all of its own power? Right. One of the things I spend some time doing on my Twitter feed is I feel like putting out some fires. And, um, And there's a lot of panic over the fact that Trump is stacking the courts and putting in a lot of conservative justices and the federal federalists are putting in their judges. And um, and then there's a leap from this to um, they're going to let Trump be a dictator. So let me take that in two parts. Yes, Trump is putting in very, very, very conservative judges, lots of them as fast as he can with McConnell's help. This is nothing that we haven't been through in most of our history. And that's one of the things I want to do is give it that perspective that in the entire history of the United States Supreme Court, we've only had two liberal courts. We had a liberal court in the time of Marshall, the first John Marshall, that was early 19th century. And then we had a liberal court with Earl Warren in the 50s and the 60s. The rest has been extraordinarily conservative. So we've always had conservative courts. So I'm a little sad to see the court get so conservative because we're going back to a place where we've been, um, but we've gotten out of that before. But as far as this idea that it's going to go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's going to say, make an absurd ruling, which would give Trump complete power, strikes me as absurd. What would be an absurd ruling from the Supreme Court would be this. Barr can hide that report and doesn't have to show it to anybody. That would be absurd. And that would be absurd because Congress, under the Constitution, has oversight and powers of impeachment. So what that would be doing is doing an end run around the Constitution and saying that the person who decides whether the president is guilty is not Congress, as the Constitution says, but an attorney general appointed by the president. If the court makes a ruling like this, it's not just for this case. The Supreme Court sets precedent. Right. So the Supreme Court has now said that as long as the president has an attorney general who will bury the evidence, the president can go shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. Why would the court do that? And then, of course, the people with their hair on fire in a panic say because they're Trump supporters and they like Trump and they're like Kavanaugh. And I say, okay, the Supreme Court justices have a lot of power, more power than most people even think about. It's one third of the government divided nine ways. Think and about they that. don't want to abdicate that power. They're not going to give it. They're not going to give it up. So if they allow Trump to commit crimes and they allow an attorney general to hide those crimes, okay, this might be a wacky example, but what if Trump says to someone, wink, wink, go knock off Ruth Bader Ginsburg? And then when there's an investigation, he squashes the investigation and he has his attorney general say Trump is innocent. I can't imagine them giving him dictatorial powers, which is what would have to happen if the Supreme Court said that Barr does not have to release it. Now, they might say something else like nobody can release certain kinds of sensitive information, but there'd be no reason not to let Nancy Pelosi or Schiff. You have to let them see it. Yeah. Well, it's a very chilling uh, scenario that that you describe. But but as you say, uh, the real remedy here will be a decisive defeat of Trump in 2020. And that's what we should be working toward. You can follow Terry Canefield on Twitter at Terry underscore Canefield and join the likes of Ken Delanian and Walter Schaub. And you can read her (laughs) blog at Terry Canefield hyphen blog dot com. Terry Canefield, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you.
All right, gang, it is time to check in with our friend Stephen Wilhelm. He is research team leader for Indivisible Washington's 8th District, and he will have our calls to action. Hello, as always, Stephen. Hey, Stephen, how you doing? Hanging in there, brother. So um, the first two actions this week have to do with immigration. Uh, First, there is a bill in front of the House right now called H.R. 6. And the full title of that is the Dream and Promise Act to provide permanent relief to dreamers, temporary protected status holders, and deferred enforcement departure holders. So there's a lot going on with this bill. Can you break it down for us? Well, as you were saying, uh, so that's that's a bill that's going to provide uh, permanent relief to um, the DACA children. The Trump administration put nearly a million DACA recipients uh, at risk. This would give um, relief to them. It would also give a relief to uh, the temporary protected status holders. And those are folks from uh, about 300,000 immigrants from uh, places like Sudan, uh, Haiti, Nepal, Nicaragua, Honduras, and El Salvador. And so if that protection is rescinded, which is what the Trump administration is trying to do, all all those people are going to have to leave their families in the U.S. and go back to their native countries where they risk death or persecution. And this um, deferred enforced departure was a program that I had not heard about before. It hasn't gotten as much attention as the DACA folks or temporary protected status, but they're also um, at risk if they're forced to return to their native country, even though a lot of them have lived in the United States for decades. Mm. Um, It's a form of protection from deportation and like all of them, have been supported by both Democratic and Republican presidents. This particular program, uh, DED, uh, provides relief to Liberians, people from uh, Liberia and Africa. Well, so this bill sounds very comprehensive, and I think uh, maybe the first action there is that we should thank Democratic lawmakers who are already on board. Um, And then there are two additional bills. There are H.R. 2214 in the House and S. 1123 in the Senate, and they address a particularly ugly chapter in the Trump administration. So tell us about these bills and what they will do. Yeah, these uh, three bills together are all part of a package to fight all forms of family separation. And H.R. 6 that we talked about just a second ago um, was already moving through the pipeline and has gotten a lot of support, as you just said. Um, For whatever reason, this Muslim ban and asylum ban repeal um, took a little bit more time to get some traction. But there's bills that are with the House and the Senate now. Okay, then to just be clear, so H.R. 2214 and S. 1123 Uh, would specifically address Trump's Muslim and asylum bans. Exactly right. So these bills would fully repeal the Muslim and asylum bans, and it'll ensure that families from uh, those affected countries and asylum seekers from Central America won't continue to face unconstitutional discrimination. And it's going to allow uh, people from those affected communities to reunite with their families in the United States. So this this is an effort to kind of solve a couple of disparate problems. You know, when the Muslim ban started, like, the first week of the Trump administration. This asylum seekers ban is something that was implemented fairly recently or is being implemented even as we speak. But, uh, you know, it's all been since that uh, attention that he gave to that caravan that was traveling northward right before the midterm election. So um, this is a bill that's trying to attack uh, both of those bans that, that occurred, you know, about two years apart. 
Yeah. And this uh, is particularly timely since uh, Attorney General Barr on Tuesday issued an order denying bail to asylum seekers. So, so Unbelievable. So the action there, of course, is to ask reps to support H.R. 6 and also H.R. 2214 and to ask both our senators to support Senate Bill 1123. All right. So the next action has to do with banning assault weapons. This is H.R. 1296. And this is specifically for listeners in the 8th District. So what can you tell us here? Yeah, yeah, you bet. So uh, H.R. 1296 is the assault weapons ban of 2019. And as everybody knows, the country continues to uh, suffer from gun violence. Um, and, And I was surprised to read that since 1970, more people have died from gun violence than have died in all wars in America's history. And there's only one reason for assault weapons. They are designed to kill many people quickly. They are not used for hunting. They're not used for self-protection. The only thing that they're designed for, as I said, is designed to kill a lot of people quickly. Um, So the bill's been co-sponsored. Interestingly enough, this bill has been co-sponsored by every Washington state Democratic representative, with the exception of Congresswoman Schreier. I'm sure she's very busy and just hasn't gotten around to it, but let's encourage her. I would encourage her constituents to get on the phone with her and uh, ask her to join her colleagues and co-sponsor this really important bill. Well, she is holding a town hall on Wednesday night, which is when we are recording. Ah. So I have a feeling that'll probably come up. So if you are outside the 8th, thank your member of Congress for supporting it. And if you are in the 8th, do call Representative Schreier and ask for her to co-sponsor it. Okay, so then our final action has to do with something that uh, has been getting a fair amount of coverage, and that is the perhaps Orwellianly titled Taxpayer First Act of 2019. So tell us about that. This is just, as you said, you know, gotten just some publicity recently, had never heard about it before, you know, right before it was passed by the House. And it looked to be, you know, bipartisan bill, non-controversial. It was passed under what's called the suspension of the rules. It was so non-controversial. Um, but both ProPublica and, and a lot of other um, publications uh, put out some information on this. So what's happening is a lot of these bipartisan co-sponsors of this bill are getting quite a bit of money, upwards of $6.6 million from companies like H&R Block and um, uh, Intuit who make uh, TurboTax. And, and so what, what they are trying to do, they're trying to protect this, I think what's called free file service that they offer, which is something that they theoretically offered that you know people can get their taxes uh, filed for free. But in fact, what it, it does is it allows these companies to upsell and, and offer uh, you know additional services at some cost. Um, and, and in fact, um, you know, ProPublica reports that actually um, upwards of 70% of Americans' taxes are so simple that the IRS could just fill the forms out for them. They could review them and say, yep, those forms are right. Go ahead and submit them. And, and that a, a lot of countries already provide this service. And there's no reason that here in America we couldn't get this same service too, except um, that lobbyists are pretty effective about persuading these these lawmakers that this service should not be provided. Now, I've seen at least um, a little bit of information on Twitter that suggests that, oh, no, this is all part of some grand plan. And when this goes through the Senate and comes back for conference, that uh, John Lewis will fix this little problem. And that could happen. But I think it's more likely to happen if we call our senators yeah. and tell them that, you know what, we don't want this bill to pass at all and make sure that this provision comes out of the Senate bill 
um, and then we call our Congress representatives when uh, when it goes to Congress and say, and don't put it back in. Um, I think this is just flying under the radar. This is another great example of, of progressive constituent power. Call your senators, and then and then when it doesn't get through the Senate, call your representative. We can actually make this change. This is something that just needs to get a little sunshine disinfectant um, to make sure it doesn't get through. You bet. Yeah, this is a time for us to to flex our muscles and make something happen. Um, actually, uh, given everything that you just said, I, I am moved to point out that Dylan Matthews writing for Vox called the House version of this bill, quote, one of the most blatant pieces of corporate welfare in years. That's a pretty high bar. It, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, considering what we've seen in the last two years, it's hard to believe that this is the most blatant example, but I think it could be. All right. So the action is to call Senators Murray and Cantwell and ask them to oppose S-928 in the Senate. All right, Stephen, that'll do it for this week. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, Stephen. Talk to you soon. That shall do it for this week's show. Hey, if you would like more information about the show and if you would like links to everything that we talk about on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org as always. And if you have not subscribed, please do. And if you would like to get in touch, the email for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guest, Terry Canefield. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.